Hello, I'm Luke Clancy, and you're welcome to a special podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. Our usual Saturday spot this week is occupied by the Culture File Debate, which this time is about a new role for music in the pandemic world. But before you click away to that, we have all the best of this week's culture, with Mary Burke and Miriam Lohan on putting good grassland into oils and sound, respectively. We'll leaf through the cookbook that made Italian cook Looking great, and Rob Long remembers a time when people used to laugh at the Golden Globes. But before that, we're beginning a new sequence of culture files from Jennifer Walsh called Things No Things. In Things No Things, the composer and artist thinks about the most important boundaries in our world, the distinctions we humans draw between us and, well, everything else. The first piece is titled The Dying Swan. The Russian ballerina Maya Plisetskaya was considered one of the greatest dancers of the 20th century, if not all time. Prima ballerina Asaluta of the Bolshoi Ballet from 1960, Plisetskaya performed all over the world to ecstatic audiences. Plisetskaya's early life was extremely difficult. Her father was executed during the Stalinist purges and when she was a child, her mother and brother were sent to the Gulag for three years. Despite her talent and dedication to the Bolshoi, the Soviet government considered Plisetskaya's Jewish heritage and family background highly suspect. Even as she danced, for visiting dignitaries, held up as a stunning example of the cultural prowess of the Soviet Union. She lived under state surveillance and was banned from touring internationally for years because of the risk of defection. Plisetskaya created a huge number of roles and danced in many different ballets over the course of her life. Her most iconic role however, was The Dying Swan, a solo dance piece just four minutes in duration, choreographed by Michel Fokine to The Swan from Saint-Saëns, The Carnival of the Animals. Audiences would cheer the rafters down to witness Plisetskaya perform this as an encore. You can watch a clip of Plisetskaya performing The Dying Swan on YouTube, The performance is from 1959. The image is in black and white, so we can't see her signature flaming red hair. The familiar notes of the swan play on the piano, and there she is, floating on a cloud of soft white tulle, shimmering across the stage like light on water. She moves as though suspended in liquid, arcing and rippling her body in ways most of us never could. Gravity just seems a petty irrelevance, darling. Feathers and elegance, just so far so ballet with a capital B. But as the clip progresses, you find yourself brought into the fold of something more profound. There are details to her performance so subtle and fleeting They're like moments from a dream. Brief, angular flicks, hints at something darker, something harder, something painful. In only a few minutes, Plisetskaya shows us the eternal cycle, but delicately, 
gently. And when it ends, when the swan dies, when those last fluttering movements invoke memories in you of other flutterings, other movements of breath and hands in hospital room, you find tears pouring down your face. The critic Walter Terry wrote that in The Dying Swan, Plisetskaya discards her identity as a ballerina and even as a human to assume the characteristics of a magical creature. For me, the magic occurs through a sense of blurring, of entanglement. Plisetskaya is a woman, but she is also a swan. In her performance, we cannot see where humans and non-humans begin and end. Only that we share things in common. Jennifer Walsh there with the first of her Things Know Things, and Jennifer will be back in a fortnight's time. Now to some grassland just outside Limerick City. For many years, Mary Burke's paintings took time to look at the forms of suburbia, from neat semis to cars and even cupcakes. But in 2019, the painter embarked on a journey into farm life, her oil pastel images, often on grand scales, starting to capture barns and outhouses, milking parlours, cattle and grass, lots of grass, on farms surrounding Limerick. The culmination of this project is an exhibition at Limerick City Gallery of art, but happening, of course, online, where Burke's images are paired with bucolic soundworks that also bring farming and the art world together. Culture File spoke to painter Mary Burke, locked down in Goatstown, Dublin, far from the Limerick farm she was capturing. What came across to me, and this was with every farmer, they are passionate about what they do. They love what they do. Not all of them make a lot of money. They work extraordinarily hard, often for very little obvious return. And I started to think, that's actually, that could be describing an artist. I certainly detected that same passion. As an artist, you only do it if you really need to do it, you want to do it, you love it. Because, again, let's face it, for most, um, there's a lot of challenges and not always ready rewards or obvious rewards. It, it was very much the same thing. I hadn't, that, that surprised me. Every farm that I went to, I felt uplifted after I left. That sheer passion, that, that love, they, they really are in love with their farms and they're terribly proud of them. We're all only a generation or two removed. I think most Irish people have some farming connections in their ancestry, whether they know or not. In my own case, my ancestors farmed in Tipperary and Cork and Waterford. It is something that we're not that far removed from. We'd set about trying to get participants. From the farmers who responded, we whittled that down to five farmers. They're not necessarily representative of all farming in Limerick, but they are kind of contrasting highly individual farms in themselves, big and small and uh, with different emphasis. And then I set about 
doing the farm visits. When I got there, I thought, this work has to be big. Quite a number of the pieces would be, you know, four by five, five by, I think, three by six feet, quite large canvases. It was a combination of taking lots of photographs. The photograph is really an aid, a sort of, uh, to jog the memory. And it's usually, if when I go to construct a painting, it's made from multiple photographs and changed and restructured and reconstructed, making something that also has a lot to do with memory and what I felt about the place and trying to re really recreate the sensations that I've experienced when I was on that visit. These were often multi-generational. They could be my grandfather, my great-grandparents had this farm. Their family would have been there for many years. I wanted to hear the stories and they walked the farm with me, showed me everything. I even got into a milking parlour while the milking was going on. I found that fascinating. Another farmer, John McNamara, really I found the essence of his farm was really about the grass. He, has, he was champion grass grower of 2018 and he was very proud of his grass and the pH content and the colour of the grass and that this was the best possible food for his cattle. The farmer actually told me, he said, look at this grass, it actually looks slightly blue. And this is to do with the nutrients and everything, the chemical composition. And I was just thinking there was a farmer who was very sensitive to um, the actual nuanced colour of his grass, which is something that a painter would look at. So I said, I've got to paint this grass. I did a large painting, which was really literally nothing more than the grass, a bit of sky and trees. And I stood back from it and looked at it and said, I've painted a landscape. I've never done that. That's not a typical thing for me to do. But really, I was thinking of it as food. It's, it's industrialised, even though it looks like it's maybe nature and it doesn't have the hand of man in it. I think any farmer would see it as this is um, grass, this is good quality grass for cattle. I suppose on, on, it's awful to say that I hardly noticed uh, lockdown because I was, in, I was barricaded into my studio making this work. I was just very fortunate that all the research was done in 2019. All my farm visits were done in 2019. So I was actually planning to uh, immerse myself in work anyway. Uh, I'm not saying it was easy, but uh, at least, you know, I was, I was able to work uninterrupted. The other end of it is, I suppose, the work is now down in the gallery. I probably will never see it in the gallery. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, what, a, over 100 miles away. Um, probably won't be able to travel. So it's, I'll only see it virtually. Uh, so it wasn't what we expected, but I suppose everything's new. We're going to have to find new ways of communicating, new ways of getting work out there. That's an adventure in itself. You're hearing sounds there from Miriam Lohan, whose work also features in the Limerick City Gallery of Art online at home on the farm exhibition, offering an online soundtrack for Mary Burke's farm paintings, much of it inspired by a journey into a piece of land haunted by farming, as Miriam Lohan told Culture File. There's uh, just to the east of Limerick City, to the east of Kings Island, um, across the Abbey River, and between that bank of the Abbey River and the bank of the Shannon, as it bends around Corbally, there's an area called Park. Park was a farming area that provided food for the city since it's pretty much 
considered to have been there since since well since the Vikings were here. So it, it's it's a very old farming area. It had been mostly horticultural. It was it was known for that, and you had a lot of small holdings there where they grew vegetables and fruit and would have brought them in to markets in Limerick City. So the people of Park were known as not quite rural farmers, but they were Limerick farmers. It was it was a hinterland more than um, a rustic area. In the last 50 years or so, more and more estates have been built up as the suburb of Corbally has grown. But there are still a lot of places in Park that retain a, a rural character. There's still some cottages, still some cottages lived in that are very much the traditional Irish farmer's cottage. Uh, there's some derelict sheds. There's a few old plum trees down down a country lane. There's there's all these little little hints of past farming in the area. So it's it's a place. It's it's very pleasant to walk there and. About 10 years ago, I'd gone up there to make Dawn Chorus recordings, and I did find it to be one of the best spots in Limerick for that kind of listening, because three o'clock in the morning in May, maybe on a, a Sunday, um, it's as hushed as it's going to be in the city. And because you have the sounds of the water and the trees there, and you have some open meadowland, it's it's actually beautiful acoustically. But Park is, is an interesting area to to look into, to walk through. You can walk all the way up along the Shannon Bank, up up as far as Corbally, and then back down again. When we realised we couldn't be bringing anybody for a walk anywhere, we, we were really just left with the different sensory aspects of park, the, the sounds that are still present there at different times of the year that would have been there during farming. And then the lost farming sounds, the silence there. There is no more cartwheels bringing cabbages into the market. There is no more... Uh, cattle in the fields we had to go back to the drawing board so many times with what we could do um, I ended up drawing on pretty much everything from uh, soundscape recordings in their pure form untouched to foley in my shed at half past five in the morning to layering and layering in almost like a musical sense where I found different sounds were rhyming in a, in a, in a pleasant way I'm a little bit mercenary I wouldn't be in a particular school, it would be, what do I need to do to get the job done? And <laughs> that's the way I'm going to do it. Um, I think this is probably from my theatre background, where it's like, right, curtains up at eight, this has got to be done. We're going to have to figure it out, find a way. It's, it's a little bit more design-led for me in, in that regard. I've tried a little bit of everything for this. I likened it to the gates and fences you see in Park. There's, um, there isn't a a proper purpose-built wall or fence in, in the whole area. What you'll have instead is a hedge and then a bit of wire and then a garden gate and then a few wooden pallets and everything is sort of lashed together. But it works, it's functional. Miriam Lohan there, who created the soundtrack for Mary Burke's Farmyard Images, which you can find at Limerick City Gallery of Arts online at home on the farm exhibition roundabout now. 
The unification of Italy politically in the 19th century is one matter, but the unification of Italy at the table is quite another. According to culinary historian Massimo Montanari, the second, far tastier unification happened courtesy of a groundbreaking cookbook published over many editions by Pellegrino Artusi. Culture Files Italian food whisperer Giorgio Casari agrees. He shared an espresso with the professor a while back to talk, if not Turkey, at least Capelletti. Professore, ma lei torte, i capelletti o i tortellini come vengono conosciuti lì fuori dall'Italia ha qualche segreto per la sua ricetta? Come li fa? Io non ho ricette perché devo confessare che non cucino. I am Massimo Montanari, professor of food history in Bologna University. Pellegrino Artusi, he was a man, not a cook, he was a gastronomer, he loved the food, and in 1891 he published a recipe book that was intended not only as a recipe book in itself, but as a sort of political project for the unification of Italy, because he thought that the new country, Italy at the time was a very new country, needed to have a book for collecting together all recipes, traditions from all regions, mainly from all families. Artusi's cuisine was a domestic one. That's why the method he used for making this project was to visit people, some restaurants and many houses, using a method that today we could call an anthropological one, starting from daily habits of people. Because you can find very different things from one cook or another one, from one house to another one. Yeah, from town to town. From I think town we have uh, 25 different types of minestrone in Italy, mm. but outside of Italy there is maybe one or two types. I, I think this has been a weakness of Italian tradition for centuries, but now, today, is... It's our strength. Yes. Yeah. It, it became yes. a strength. Because uh, what people ask for today is curiosity for uh, new flavors, new things... Uh, and uh, not having the same thing everywhere or every time. When I am bold, uh, I say that uh, French cuisine is uh, more likely to fast food cuisine, to McDonald's style, than the Italian one, because it has a standard. Good standard or bad standard, that's another question, but the standard you can have always at the same uh, in the same way. I obviously agree, but let's hope the French embassy is not listening to this program. I have, I have, a, I have a hard copy, beautiful. It's quite big. It's like a Bible. It's much, much, much more than a recipe book, as my rightly says. So, in fact, it's it's a window into that century, into the 18th century, and within the window, it provides a second window into all previous centuries. Like at the beginning of the book, we have about. 35 pages on previous century cuisines, full of anecdotes of life in those centuries. It's really amazing. There is a little bit of philosophy, statements thrown here and there. There is some witty history, 
or moments that he shared. His book was directed to the people, not to the professional cook. And this is the amazing uh, new concept at the time. When we are faced with uh, Artus's book, uh, we must realize that uh, the material context in which he worked and he lived was very different from ours. He had not uh, gas in the kitchen, so he worked with fire and wood, and that is very different from our point of view today. He had not uh, origin market products, but only products, good products from uh, the country. He does not mention uh, a kind of meat, a kind of ham, but only a good meat, a good ham. Many Artus's recipes can still be made today, and they are, in fact, made. They were made by our grandmothers. I was just flicking through the pages of uh, Artusi book, and I came across this macaroni recipe, and I was stunned because this recipe is obviously nearly one and a half century old, yet I ate it six months ago in the very uber trendy and modern Cipriani in London, just off Barclay Square. It's very, very simple, and like all things simple, like spaghetti pomodoro basilico, that seem to be very simple, because they're so simple, it can be a total disaster when it's done very, very badly, or it can be sublime when it's done perfectly. And it's just uh, macaroni or tagliatelle, tossed in a pan with lots of butter, cooked ham and uh, cream, lots of cheese, and then bechamel on top, because Artusi was already mixing a little bit of Italian and French, maybe as we got near to the border with France. And then they're tossing a pan, a little bit of bechamel under the salamander, and it's that recipe that Cipriani is using today. So yes, some of the recipe can be used in restaurants today. But I am, I am a scholar. I study Artusi. I don't cook, but he didn't cook. He was not a cook. He had a servant. Her name was Marietta, and she was a very strategical figure in Artusi's house because she represented the peasant part of Italian society. The reason why Artus's book was so influent and so successful in Italian history is that Artus's book was not an individual book. In a sense, Artus's book was a collective work. Uh, many peasant families gave this book to the daughters that went married. And in this way, Artus's book has spread the word because many emigrants from Italy brought this book with them. And, and, and they were men and women for, for, of the people, not bourgeoisie or aristocrats. And, and this is the reason why Artus's book has become the national book of Italians. Massimo and Giorgio on the first gospel of Italian food, Pellegrino Artusi's Science in the Kitchen and the Art of Eating Well.
This Sunday night, Los Angeles time, the Golden Globe Awards take place, a closely watched event for anyone and their agent in the running for an Oscar, as well as insomniacs on this side of the Atlantic. But that wasn't always the way, and once upon a time, the A-listers would even titter at the upstart ceremony, as Rob Long remembers in his latest Martini Shot. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. Do you want to hear something sad? I've been a working writer and producer in Los Angeles for 30 years, but the only really great Hollywood party I've ever been to was my first one, way back in 1991, after the Golden Globe Awards. It wasn't really a party at all in the formal sense. It was an ad hoc, spontaneous gathering of some of the biggest stars and most powerful people in Hollywood, plus me. I was a low-level writer on a hit television comedy, and I'm pretty sure that the only reason I was allowed to go in the first place was that I had told my boss that if he and his wife went and she wanted to leave early, she could take the limousine home and I'd give him a ride. So there I was. Now, back then, the Golden Globe Awards, a sort of a pre-Oscar overture put on by something called the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, well, it had a distinctly down-market vibe to it. The ceremony wasn't even broadcast nationally. The theory was, I suppose, that there wouldn't be much national interest in awards given out by an obscure and vaguely fraudulent collection of foreign journalists to a group of actors and actresses who may not even bother to show up. And the only way to get them to show up was to make sure that the really big names, well, the big names back then, you know, Jack Nicholson, Julia Roberts, well, to get them to show up too, and the only way to get them to show up was to relentlessly flog the Golden Globe Awards as a kind of a sneak peek early Oscar handicap race with free liquor and cool gift bags. But even then, the Globes were an iffy proposition. In fact, in those days, the only group to take the awards seriously were the writers, because for writers, any event that promises free cocktails and a swank gift bag is a serious event. Now that year, for some reason... Everyone who was anyone actually showed up. Maybe it was the weather or some kind of astrological convergence, but the trouble was, because no one knew that everyone was going to go, no one planned any parties for everyone to go to afterwards. So we all just sort of stood in the lobby of the Beverly Hilton, quite literally all dressed up with no place to go. Someone, probably a writer, exclaimed loudly that he needed a drink, and someone else, probably a producer, pointed out helpfully that Trader Vic's, a retro Polynesian joint with an exotic cocktail menu, was located within the hotel itself. Finally, someone big, Jack Nicholson maybe, or Julia Roberts, shouted, let's all go get Mai Tais. And so that's that's what we did. A couple of hundred of us, snaking through the lobby of the Beverly Hilton in our shiny clothes, already slightly toasted from the wine and the drinks with dinner, but freed from the micro-handling of studio publicists and the tyranny of the exclusive guest list, without an A-list party to race off to, or in my case, try to crash, we stuffed ourselves into Trader Vic's like salesmen at a convention, all backslapping and can I buy you a drink and how the hell are you? A stunning young actress found herself at the pay telephones without a coin. So remember, this was in the days before cell phones were ubiquitous, and she was trying to call her mother. I, tipsy and charming, gallantly provided several coins. She gave me a grateful kiss, stamping my cheek with a blood-red lip print that later earned me an attaboy wink from the star of several major action-adventure blockbusters. As I said, it was the best party I've ever been to. Probably, because it wasn't a party at all. 
But you know how those things go. The next year, word was out. After parties were planned, guest lists were printed and checked at the door, and everyone who was anyone had a place to go. The only people left milling in the lobby of the Beverly Hilton without a party invitation in hand, of course, were the writers, who in general are rarely invited anywhere because they tend to drink too much and spill things when face-to-face with such a huge amount of physical beauty. And the Globes themselves went way upscale. The studio publicists realized that no one really cared what exactly the Hollywood Foreign Press Association was or who exactly its members were. Winning a Golden Globe positioned you or your movie to win an Oscar. So it was worth corralling the stars and paying for the limousines and planning a lavish after-party for the sake of an award that a few years earlier people actually snickered at. Except the writers, of course. We snicker at many things, but free food and drink are sacred to us. And so is the idea of one big, unplanned, spontaneous Hollywood party. Well, for me anyway, because that's the only kind I get invited to. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. And Rob's long-ago downed Mai Tai brings to a close this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more nostalgic mixology next week. Don't forget that also in your feeds this week is the latest edition of the Culture File Debate, where we'll be talking about the new place culture in general and music in particular is finding in health and wellness in our pandemic era. The next edition of the Culture File Weekly will be in your feeds next Friday evening and day. Daily Culture File is back on Monday on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now.